let's go ahead and jump into the text. We're going to be in the book of Galatians this morning. The book of Galatians, it's uh, in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's uh, epistles. It's after 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's going to be towards the back of your Bible, towards the back of the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to primarily be focused on two verses, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. But uh, we're also, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of the entire book of Galatians. So we're going to bounce around uh, quite a bit. Uh, So uh, if you've got a Bible, turn there. The words will also be on the screen behind me. So if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along up there. Let me go ahead and read Galatians 2, 19 to 20. This is the word of God. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you really, truly are a good, good father. I thank you that uh, you really, truly are faithful. Uh, I thank you that you, uh, despite our sin, that you would love us so much that you would leave your throne in heaven, Jesus, and that you would come and, and, and love us and give yourself for us on the cross. Lord, as we talk about salvation by faith alone this morning, God, I know that that is a doctrine that, um, that many people um, don't like. It's a doctrine that many people don't understand. It's a doctrine that many Christians struggle to believe. So God, I pray that you would open up eyes this morning, that you would open up hearts this morning. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord. I pray that your word would come in power, that you would remove me out of the way and that people would not see Jared, that they wouldn't be focused on what I'm doing, but that they would be focused on you, Jesus. Help me to lift you up. I pray that you would be magnified and glorified. Lord, I want people here to see how precious is the blood of the Lamb. So God, please, please do that this morning. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, Galatians, as I said, was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, uh, which was really uh, probably uh, multiple small churches in a region called Galatia. Uh, And Paul wrote this letter because there were teachers uh, who were uh, going around the Galatian church uh, telling uh, the Christians there that, yes, you need to trust in Jesus for salvation, but you also need to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Now, to give you a little bit of background, just just in case you don't know, uh, circumcision was one of the rights, uh, if you will, uh, for uh, Jewish people to be a part of the covenant people of God. So to be a part of the covenant people of God, to be a child of Abraham, you had to be circumcised, okay? And so what they were doing is they were telling Christians that you're not really saved by faith alone. You also have to be circumcised and you've got to keep the law of Moses, And so that's why Paul uh, writes this letter, because many of the Galatian Christians were beginning to follow these teachings, and Paul was very concerned about this. 
the letter of Galatians is kind of unique compared to Paul's other letters because there's a sense of urgency in Paul's tone here. Uh, usually in Paul's other letters, he begins, he begins with some introductory remarks and then he does a prayer of thanksgiving, but you don't see that here. He has a brief introduction and then he gets straight into it. Just, I mean, listen to how he starts in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So the very heart of the gospel was at stake in Galatia. Now you might be asking yourself, okay, that's great, Jared. Thanks for the history lesson this morning. What does that have to do with me? And um, the reality is, is that this is actually an incredibly relevant book for you and for all of us, because we're not that much different than the Galatian Christians. The heart of the gospel is that we are justified by faith alone, not by obedience to the law. That word justified simply means to be legally in right standing. And like the Galatians, we too have a tendency to drift from the gospel of justification by faith alone. Many Christians would readily affirm their belief that we are saved by believing that Jesus died for us on the cross and rose from the dead. And yet, many of us struggle to varying degrees with the assurance of our salvation, right? We waver, we doubt. Even though we would say, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, I believe He rose from the dead, and yet for some reason we still have doubts. Why is that? Why do doubts arise in our hearts? Well, most often... For the Christian, the doubt has nothing to do with whether Jesus actually died for our sins and actually rose from the dead or that we actually must just repent and believe to be saved. We believe that. What Christians often struggle with is whether the gospel applies to them. There's a big difference, a huge difference. Yes, I believe the gospel saves people by grace through faith, but I don't know if I'm one of those people. That's the struggle that many Christians have, right? Does anybody, anybody know what I'm talking about here? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we're not looking to Christ's work on the cross for our assurance, but to our own works. And that's the message of Galatians in some. We are saved not by what we can do, but by faith in what God has done. We are saved not by what we can do, but by faith in what God has done. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So my longing for us, church, is that we be a people who joyfully walk in the assurance of God's love. That we would truly walk in freedom. Paul prayed in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. He was praying for the Ephesian believers, and he said, uh, he asked God that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the width and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's my prayer for each one of you this morning as well, that this would happen in you and in me. But there's a second burden I have this morning and a second group of people that I want to talk to, there are, many, there are also many people who think that they are Christians who would say that Jesus is my Savior, but they believe a different gospel. And much like the false teachers in Galatia who said they believed that Jesus was their Savior, there are many 
Christians who believe it is their good works that will ultimately get them to heaven. There are many people who say that they're Christians who believe that their good works will ultimately get them to heaven. Uh, In America, this often takes the form of something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Um, that's, that was a term that was come up by uh, a co- couple of uh, sociologists named uh, Christian Smith and Mel- Melina Denton. And as they studied the religious beliefs of Americans, they found five core beliefs. And, and they summed it up as moralistic therapeutic deism. Here are the, the five beliefs that they found are so prevalent in the lives of many Americans. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Many people... Many people believe that and call it Christianity, guys. Let me be clear. That is not Christianity. If, if that is what you believe and you're here this morning, then you're not a Christian. But my prayer is that by the time you leave here, you will be. <laughs> if that's what you believe, then I'm actually really glad that you're here. Because if you're listening, you're going to hear good news So good that it's going to blow your socks off. Because the gospel, the actual gospel, is so much better than that. You don't have to keep laboring under the burden of trying to be a good person. You don't have to keep living with the nagging sense of feeling like you haven't done enough or the fear of judgment. The gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone sets us free from that. And even if this isn't you... This is still important for us, church, because many of the people that we want to reach in our neighborhood have these beliefs. Uh, I think I told you guys, it was last week or the week before, uh, when we were out at the farmer's market and we were talking to people, and I had at least four times, at least four people that I talked to, uh, I I would ask them the question, who is Jesus to you? And they'd say, Jesus is my Savior. And then when I'd ask them, what do you think is going to happen when you die? They would say, well, I don't know. I think I'm going to go to heaven. But I'd ask them why. They'd say, well, I, I just try to be a good person. Like over and over and over again, I encounter people who say that they believe Jesus is their Savior, but when it comes down to it, they believe it is up to them and their good works on whether or not they're going to go to heaven one day, whether or not God is going to accept them. Uh, Dean and Sarah, he's a pastor in Tallahassee. He wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian uh, that I would commend to you. He says this, he says, the church must awaken to the reality that this that moralistic therapeutic deism, that this is a false gospel with eternal consequences. Cultural Christianity is a mindset that places one's security in heritage, values, rites of passage, and a generic deity rather than the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He's absolutely right. I fear that many of our family members and friends who say that they're Christians aren't holding to the gospel of justification by faith alone, but rather they are believing a different gospel, a gospel that is dependent upon their own works to make them right before God. So we need to understand the gospel of justification by faith alone so that 
we can live in the freedom it brings and so that we can help others find the freedom it brings. We need to understand this, church. So here's where we're going this morning. To walk in the freedom of the gospel, it's just really simple outline. By the way, there are uh, uh, outlines on your seat. You can use those to follow along and fill in the notes. To walk in the freedom of the gospel, we need to know why we can't be justified by works, and we need to know why we're justified by faith alone. We need to know why we can't be justified by works, and we need to know why we are justified by faith alone. All right, so let's get into it. Look at again at our text, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Through the law, I have died to the law. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. So Paul, who once devoted his entire life to keeping the law, because he used to be a Pharisee, now says he's dead to the law. Now, Paul doesn't mean that he thinks we should no longer obey the law. He, 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 but when he says, I've died to the law, he's not saying the law doesn't matter anymore or that it's not important. What he means is that he is dead to trying to be justified by keeping the law. He's no longer trying to keep the law to earn God's favor. Why has Paul died to the law? Why can't we be justified by works? Like, what is the reason? I, I counted at least five reasons in the book of Galatians, and I'm not going to have time to get into all of them, so I'm just going to give you the two, I think, most important reasons um, that we can't be justified by the law. So the first reason is that the law doesn't save us from sin. It shows us our sin. The law doesn't save us from sin. It shows us our sin. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? What does it mean, through the law? Well, he means that it was the law itself that showed him that he couldn't keep the law. It was the law itself that showed him his sinfulness. It was the law that made him see how short he fell of God's righteousness. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, uh, he put it like this. He said, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. You know, I didn't know that salsa dancing wasn't for me until I tried to do it and I found out that I have stiff hips. So I didn't know that, right? So, so through salsa dancing, I have died to salsa dancing. Because now that I have discovered that I fall far short of the standards for salsa dancing, I'm not going to try to do it anymore. It's the same when we try to keep the law, right? It, it's, it's at, the harder we try to keep it, the more we realize that we really can't keep it. But here, this is why many people, when you talk to them, you know, like when I go and I share the gospel and when I'm talking with people, uh, people have a pretty good opinion of themselves and they think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I try to be. The reason is that they don't try to resist temptation. So they don't know how strong the pull of evil really is. But start trying to resist and you quickly realize just how weak you really are. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, if anything, you come to see more and more just how depraved your sinful nature really is. Like, I am amazed at my own sinfulness the, lo the longer I walk with Jesus. Right? Like, as we, as we grow and as we go along in our Christian life, uh, God's going to give us experiences where we're going to be shown our own sinfulness. Another thing that will do that is marriage. You get married, you'll find out really quick just how selfish you are. Just how much of a jerk you can be. Just how short your temper can be. Amen? Secondly, the law doesn't save us from sin. It shows us our sin. And secondly, if we break one law, we're guilty of it all. 
If we break one law, we're guilty of it all. That's the second reason that we can't be justified by the law. Look at, we're going to flip over to chapter 3. I told you we were going to be uh, a little bit all over Galatians. So chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. Paul says this. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You've, you've probably heard the term before, maybe you've heard the term before, the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anybody heard that? And that's true. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Another truth is that we all have the same grade when it comes to keeping the law. Well. F. All of us. The ground is level at the, at, in front of the law as well, and we're all, it's... The ground that we're on is the floor, like the bottom. We all fail to keep the law. There are billions of people all over this planet trying in vain to be justified before God by the law, by doing good works. They think that they will be saved by their works. Every world religion, aside from Christianity, is built upon this idea. If you do this then you will earn this. That's, that's, the, that's the, the gist of every single world religion aside from Christianity. Whether it's keeping the five pillars of Islam or trying to reach nirvana or, or working to have good karma, billions of people believe that if they are a relatively good person and if they do the things that their religion prescribes, then it will turn out all right for them in the end. But Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, those verses we just read, is a death blow to that belief, and we need to hear it. It is clear that it does not matter how good we are relative to other people. All that matters is that in relation to God's perfect law, we are under a curse. We cannot be justified. And just think about it with me. I mean, maybe you're sitting there and you're kind of like, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I like how that feels. That's kind of like make, you know, uh, ruffling my feathers a little bit. But, but bear with me a little bit. Think about this. Doing good works to earn God's favor is like trying to bribe God. Someone who tries to do good deeds to go to heaven is essentially saying, look, God, I know I'm not perfect, but let's make a deal. I'll give money to the poor, and I'll put in volunteer hours, and I'll try to be kind to everyone, and you just look the other way. Easy. We got a deal? How do you think that's going to go before a holy God for you? It's not going to go well. A just judge will not take a bribe. And God is a just judge. The debt that we have incurred must be paid. And every single person on this planet, I don't care who you are, has earned the wages of your sin is death. Every single one of us. If you really think about it, it's actually impossible to fulfill the law by trying to obey the law. Because when we're obeying God to get something in return, a.k.a. salvation, we're not obeying God out of sheer love for God himself, but out of love for me, right? I'm obeying God to get something from God whenever I'm obeying the law to try to earn salvation. And what's the greatest commandment? Does anybody know? That's right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
So the very act of trying to obey the law to earn God's favor causes you to break the very heart of the law. Do you see what I'm saying? By trying to obey the law to earn salvation, you are not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you're breaking the heart of the law. This is precisely what Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees. This is what the Pharisees did over and over again. Just for an example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You see that? They were, I mean, they were like making sure that they tied down to the last penny, like even their spices in their cabinet. They're going out and taking 10% of their spices and making sure they drop that in the offering plate. Please don't do that here. So they're doing that, but they're neglecting the love of God because they're not even loving God with all their heart. They're in it for themselves. They're trying to earn God's favor. They're comparing themselves with other people. They were neglecting justice, which basically Jesus means loving other people, and the love of God. What are your motives for obeying God? Is it a joyful obedience and gratitude for His grace? Or is it a fearful or begrudging obedience to avoid punishment and to earn His favor? If God saves us completely by grace, then we're free to obey God out of a heart that loves Him freely, not for what we can get from Him but simply because we love Him. And guess what? I've got good news. God does save us by His grace. Let's look at the next part. Now that the hard part's over, the the necessary evil of realizing where we're at in our sin, let's talk about how we are justified by faith alone. Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is a sobering thought to realize that by works of the law, no one will be justified. This means that as it stands, every single one of us is under the righteous judgment of God, and God would be perfectly just to judge us and punish us for our sin. And that's what makes this verse I just read so amazing. He loved me and gave himself for me. You need to hear this. Though we were dead in our sin, and there was nothing good in us deserving of God's mercy, Jesus left his throne to come and dwell amongst sinful men. He fulfilled the requirements of God's law. Jesus perfectly kept the law of God. He loved and obeyed the Father perfectly. He's the only man who has ever deserved glory and favor from the Father. But listen to what he did. Look at Galatians 3, verses 13 to 14. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen, church, Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated like Jesus deserves to be treated. Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated so that we could be treated like Jesus deserves to be treated. That's crazy. That's, that's grace that's unexplainable. 
That's love that's undeniable, just like we sang earlier. Simply by placing our faith in Jesus, his death becomes our death, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it. It says, He who knew no sin became sin. He took all of our sin on himself so that we could become the righteousness of God. We are justified by faith alone. That happens simply by placing your faith in Jesus. To help us feel the full extent of what this means, listen to this quote from J.I. Packer. He's a, a theologian and an author. He says, To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. So when you are justified by faith alone in Christ, even though you have transgressed God's law and you are 100% guilty, God has wiped that guilt away and you are entitled to all of the privileges as if you have kept the law perfectly. That's how God treats you because you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no double jeopardy in God's court. He's not going to dig up your sin if Christ has already paid your debt. But you must repent and place your faith in Jesus to receive this gift. You must stop relying on works of the law. You must stop looking to your own good works to try to earn God's favor and as your hope for what you're going to stand before God and say. Someone's going to pay the debt for your sin. God is a just judge. Somebody's going to pay the debt for your sin. And there's only two options. Either you are going to pay the debt for your sin, or Jesus will pay the debt for your sin. Why? The book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet says to Israel, he says, why would you die? Why will you die? Why would you not receive this free gift? Why would you not call upon the name of the Lord Jesus right now by faith and say, Jesus, I know I can't be righteous before you by my own works. Please, please forgive me of my sin. I believe that your sacrifice on the cross was enough for me. I believe that I can be cleansed and justified simply by faith. Please save me, Jesus. There's a reason that I talk about this every single week. There's a reason that we center on the gospel every single week. It's because you and I are always forgetting it. I've often, just as a, to be transparent, I have often struggled with receiving God's grace in my life. And I know that there are many other Christians who do too. But we also need to beware of playing the victim here. There is a false humility of self-pity that you can fall into and it's sinful. We're not mere victims of our doubt and our unbelief. It's sinful to stay in that place where we wallow in self-pity and think, woe is me, God is never going to love me. Because what happens when you go there is that first of all, you're going to have a critical, harsh spirit. If you don't know how to receive grace well, you're not going to extend grace well to others. But secondly, while you think you're being humble, you're actually being prideful. Why? Because you aren't looking to 
Jesus' work on the cross anymore, but to your own works. As if somehow there's actually the possibility that you could do enough to earn God's favor. Jesus is not glorified by that. Jesus is not honored by us wallowing in our self-pity and going, there's no way God could ever love me. Do you know how Jesus is honored? He's honored when we say, Jesus, I know your blood is sufficient to pay the penalty for my sins because you are great. You are perfect. You are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's what brings honor to God. Not, oh, I don't know. I don't know if God would ever really love somebody like me. I don't know if the blood really applies to me. I don't know if God is really able to save me or if he would even want to. That's, that's besmirching God's character, to be quite honest. It's not glorifying to God. It's actually dishonoring to God. So some of you guys need to hear this. Some of you, like, so, you know, I, there's, there's comfort this morning, but there's also a little bit of a rod, a little bit of kick in the pants. Some of you who've been wallowing in self-pity and in doubt need to repent. Like, you need to stop. Just stop it. Stop it and look, look away from yourself and look to the cross. I love how Paul says in, in verse 20, he says, he loved me and gave himself for me. Do you hear that personal language? You, when you read that passage, you need to really see those two words, that, that little word, me, and apply it to yourself. He loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a believer, like struggling with whether or not God loves you, if you believe, but if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, and that His blood is sufficient to cover sins, then this gospel is not theoretical. It doesn't apply to those people over there. It's for you. He loved me and gave Himself for me. There's nothing more heartbreaking and unnecessary than a Christian living under the weight of condemnation. You can walk out of the prison of doubt today. How do you do it? You do it by taking your eyes off of yourself and fixing them on the cross. And guys, you've got to do that every day. You might have to do it ten times a day. That's why we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we've got to know the Word. That's why we've got to be in the Word. It's why we've got to memorize the Word. So that every time, look, Satan is called the accuser. He accuses the brethren before the throne of God day and night. He wants you to you know, not believe that God loves you. He wants to take you out of the game. He wants you to doubt your salvation, all of that stuff. And so what do we, what's our weapon of warfare? It's the Word of God. It's the Gospel. It's, it's clinging to it. It's believing it. It's preaching it to yourself over and over every day. It means being around God's people consistently. Get into a small group. Get into a discipleship relationship. Look, if you're struggling with doubt about whether or not God loves you and you come to church once every two weeks and that's the extent of your involvement in the body of Christ, I've got news for you. That's the reason that you're struggling with doubt because you're not around God's people. You're not being reminded of this gospel. If, if you're not in the word on a regular basis in the morning, like you don't do that to earn favor with God. You do that to be reminded that you already have God's favor. Amen. Like that's why we read the Bible. That's why we pray. He already loves you. If you've placed your faith in him, you're good. Like, you're justified. You do it so that you can be reminded of His love for you. God has exonerated you from your guilt, which I think is a point on your outline I skipped, so you can fill it in now. And not only that, but God empowers us with His Spirit. 
Paul says in verse 20 of Galatians 2, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives within me. How does Christ live in us? Like, what does that mean? Well, he lives in us by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ. I wish I could preach a whole other sermon on this, and maybe I will soon, but let me just briefly give you one reason that God has gifted us with his spirit. There's multitudes of reasons, but I'm just going to give you one. One of Paul's primary emphases when it comes to the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians is that it is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to produce the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the Spirit, like it talks about in Galatians 5. So when Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he's saying first and foremost that he's stopped trying to produce righteous works on his own. Paul is dead, but Put positively, he's saying that he is now yielding to the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit produces the fruit in him. That's what he means when he says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. So just because we have died to the law doesn't mean that obedience no longer matters. It does. But it is not you that produces that fruit. It is the Spirit of God in you. The Christians, the, the reason you have a desire for God at all is because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says in chapter 4, he says, because you are sons, sons of God, God has spent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you weren't saved, you would not have a longing and a love for God. You would not desire to honor him and obey him. Lost people don't desire to honor and obey God and to give God glory. Romans chapter 8 says the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why if you have that desire to do that, that's another evidence that you're born again, that you're saved. Because it's not your spirit that's producing that. It's the Holy Spirit that's producing those desires for God's glory. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, he says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God has One of the other reasons God has given us the Spirit is to make us secure in the fact that we are children of God, that we are sons of God. In Christ, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And that sonship means that all that belongs to the Father and the Son belongs to you. Oh man, I wish I could get more into this. There's so much in Galatians. We could talk about we could talk about the inheritance of Jesus Christ. You know, we sang about that earlier. All of God's promises are yes and amen. We could talk about that. We're gonna we might even have to preach through Galatians this next year, man, because I was fired up. I was fired up this week when I was studying this. So listen, guys, in Christ you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you that lives trying to keep the law, it is Christ by His Spirit that lives in you and produces fruit in you. And here's the deal. We're not always fruit-producing machines, are we? There's a battle going on. Paul describes that in Galatians chapter 5, that our flesh is still hanging on by a thread, and sometimes the flesh keeps Christians from doing what they want to do, which is produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's called indwelling sin. And God allows it in his sovereignty partly to remind us just how badly we need his grace every single day. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, uh, believe it or not, there was a time in his life where he really struggled mightily with believing that God would actually save a wretch like him. Listen to his words here. 
He says, We may well mourn that our love to the Lord is so faint and wavering, but oh, what a cause of joy to know that His love to us is infinite and unchangeable. Our attainment in sanctification is weak and our progress slow, but our justification is perfect and our hope sure. I hope you're noticing a theme in this sermon. The theme is, for assurance of salvation, look away from yourself and look to the cross of Jesus Christ. In the face of our feeble and fickle attempts to love God, God's love towards us in Christ is immeasurable and unchangeable. So you may not have progressed in spiritual growth as much as you think you should have. You may not be as bold as you wish you were. You may not pray as much as you think you should, but praise God that we are saved not by what we can do, but by faith in what God has done. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, I thank you so much for this gospel of justification by faith. And Lord, I pray that now as we spend some time uh, just uh, doing some questions and answers, God, I pray that you would continue to uh, be with us, that Holy Spirit, you can continue to speak through me, that you would continue to speak through your word over the next few minutes. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to take just a few minutes here. We've got time for a couple of questions before we close out. Uh, so Thomas. Yeah, you can stand up here. Okay, there we go. Okay, a really good question that came in. Uh, there are multiple questions around this one. So just uh, it's addressing the tension in the New Testament uh, between keeping the law and being justified uh, by Christ. And so how do we explain what James says when he says that we are justified by works in uh, James chapter 2? Yeah, that's a great question. And James chapter 2 is actually part of our Bible reading plan uh, this week. So uh, we read Galatians and James. Does anybody think that may have been by design? Yes, the person that put together this Bible reading plan did that on purpose because Galatians and James are kind of like two opposite ends of the pendulum swing, okay? Uh, so uh, Martin Luther himself, who uh, you know, started the Reformation, he got tied up in knots about the book of James. Like He actually you know, had trouble even you know, accepting that James was a part of the canonical Bible. Like That's how much it gave him fits. It is. So when, when uh, James says in James chapter 2 uh, that we are justified uh, by works... Uh, what he's talking about is he says that uh, when Abraham uses Abraham as an example, he says when Abraham believed God and he offered up his son Isaac, when God told Abraham uh, to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, it says that Abraham believed God and he acted out. He, he followed through in obedience. And so he says that Abraham's faith was confirmed by his obedience. In other words, think about it this way. You ever done a trust fall? Anybody know? So it's like where you stand up on a, like a high thing and you got like six people behind you and you're supposed to be blindfolded and you're supposed to like fall backwards and trust them to catch you. If I'm standing up here and you guys are behind me and you go, okay, Jared, go ahead and fall. And I say, all right, I trust you guys. I know you're going to catch me. And you're like, okay, go ahead and fall. We got you. I know. I, I really, I, I really believe that you would catch me. I, I'm confident that you would catch me. Okay, then just fall. Uh, I'm just going to stay up here, but I really believe that you guys are catching me. Would you, would you trust that I actually believe you? Do I actually trust you if I don't fall? No. What's going to be the evidence that I trust you, that I have faith? 
I'm going to fall. My, my faith is going to be followed up by action. That's why James says faith without works is a dead faith because it's not a genuine faith. It's a hollow faith that has no substance. Does that make sense? Cool. So a theme in some of the questions was uh, along those lines and following up with that question is uh, why then is obedience necessary? If, uh, if there are laws to keep and we're justified by Jesus, are there laws that we should keep and shouldn't keep? Like, what, how does all that work? Yeah, it's a good question, too. So uh, there's a couple layers to this question. First of all, uh, yes, obedience is necessary because God is holy. And uh, the book of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So here's the deal. No, nobody's going, only holy people are going to go to heaven. Okay, so... When you are saved and the Spirit of Jesus comes and dwells in you and He begins to produce the fruit of righteousness, right now there's still an ongoing battle with indwelling sin. You are st- we're still stuck in what my mentor, my mentor, the guy that led me to Jesus, used to call this our earth suit, right? like our flesh. It's our earth suit. And we can't wait to take this, this body of flesh off right, and to not have to struggle with sin anymore. But right now we do. And the process of sanctification is the process of us being made more and more like Jesus, okay? Of our behavior and of our nature being more and more conformed uh, to His image. And that process will be completed not one day sooner. It will be completed on the day that you stand before God. So either you die or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. You're going to stand before Him, and that process of sanctification will be complete, all right? As for the laws that we you know, need to obey and, and don't obey, the Old Testament uh, has different types of laws. There are civic laws, there are ceremonial laws, and then there are moral laws. Okay, So uh, God gave the nation of Israel civic laws, which were basically like, uh, you know, here's how we live amongst one another so that our society doesn't descend into chaos. Um, so there were laws like that. Uh, so an example of a civic law today would be like, don't run stop signs. Um, that's a civic law that keeps people safe. There were ceremonial laws, uh, like uh, whenever you sinned, you had to go and you had to take an offering, a sacrifice to the priest, and he would offer up the offering. So those laws have passed away, number one, because the true people of God are are not the ethnic people of Israel, but we are all children of Abraham by faith, is what it says in Galatians chapter 2. Everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ is a child of Abraham. So God's not saving an ethnic nation. He's saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Okay, number one. Number two, the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled because uh, Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for all sins. There's no longer any need for more sacrifices to be brought into the temple. The presence, the spirit of God doesn't dwell in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple anymore. Where does he dwell? In you. Right. So there's no longer, those things have passed away. The book of Hebrews talks all about that. Uh, and you can, you, you know, I'd encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews and uh, you can read up more on that. So I think... Probably one more. Okay, one more. Okay, um, you talked a little bit in the sermon about depression and being in bondage to that. Uh, so we had a few questions asking uh, along the lines like, "What is your encouragement uh, to those who struggle with either mental illness or anxiety or depression or doubt, uh, like a daily struggle, daily battle?" Mm-hmm. And also, um, well, uh, and with that. Uh, are there, um, let's see, I'm sorry, real quick. Uh, are there ways in which um, you would say this is a way to sort of take a step out of that, like some kind of application to help people move 
towards Christ and not so focused on themselves. So one of the one of the so I, I've had a history ever since I was um, a teenager of struggling with depression. Okay, uh, and so that's been something that's been real for me. So if you deal with that or something like that, uh, I can empathize with you because I know exactly what that's like. Um, one of the hardest things in the Christian life, I think, is to figure out uh, what's the relationship between mental illness and, you know, the spiritual life, right? Like, what in me is sin and unbelief, and what is chemical imbalance, right? Uh, that's not easy. So there's no, like, black and white answer to that. Um, I, I Here's what I think. I think, number one, um, I think that... Oh, the spiritual nature of our, you know, the, the, the sin component is always going to be the foundation, but I also think that it is good and it is right to pursue things like counseling and even medication if uh, you've been diagnosed with some sort of, uh, you know, depression or anxiety disorder or something like that. Uh, so, like, first of all, I'd say, like, if you, you know, are struggling with either suicidal thoughts or you're struggling with, you know, just being in a very dark place, you haven't been able to get out, you've been there for months and months, first of all, come talk to one of us. Like, your first steps, come to talk to one of the elders. Come talk to myself, to Thomas, or Orion. Uh, the first step out of the darkness is bringing those struggles into the light, okay? Don't try to suffer alone in silence. Go talk to somebody and bring it to us so that we can help you figure out what next steps to take. Part of those next steps may be biblical counseling. We can do biblical counseling here. Part of it may be going and seeing a doctor, but we can, you know, work with you uh, and, and help you figure that out. Um, and I, you know, one of the good things is that I do have experience with that personally, so uh, I might be able to help you navigate that, uh, and I'd love to do that. Uh, and then just the, the other thing, just really practically, besides going and, and bringing it to somebody, is, um, like, like I said earlier, be in community and be in the Word of God and just pray. Like, pray and ask God, God, help me. That passage I read earlier, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Lord, help me to know the height and the width and the breadth and the depth and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, though it's too great to understand fully. Help, help me to, to understand and know your love towards me like that. I've been praying that prayer over myself and over the people in my church for years and years and years. It's one of my favorite prayers to pray. I would encourage you and exhort you to do the same uh, in your life. Amen. All right. I'm going to pray, and then um, we're going to close out. Uh, Carrie's going to close us out with a closing song. God, thank you so much for this time and your word. Um, Lord, I thank you for the hope of the gospel. Um, God, I thank you that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Jesus. I thank you that every single person in here uh, can walk out of that prison of doubt and of darkness and of condemnation this morning. All they must do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. I pray that if there's anybody here that hasn't done that, that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that if there's anybody who's suffering and struggling with depression, struggling with doubt, that today would be the day that they would take their first step towards getting out of it, that they would come and talk to us, that they would bring that to somebody and begin to get the care that they need so that they can walk in freedom, the freedom that you intend for us to walk in, Lord. God, we love you. Thank you that you are a God who hears prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.